Ladies and gentlemen, Orange Bloods, my name is Alex Dunlap. I'm the curator of and the narrator for The Deep Dig. Ladies and gentlemen, Orange Bloods, welcome back to the Deep Dig Podcast on orangebloods.com, episode 17. My name is Alex Dunlap, and we have a lot to get to today. Uh, I've been asked at what point I would resort to cannibalism uh, by somebody in the Orange Bloods community. That's not what's going to hook you into this content, though. What's going to hook you into this content is Texas football, and we start out by addressing how can we not. It's the elephant in the room. It's the super monster, the epic Deontay Foreman 445 Pro Day 40 time. And look, this is gonna. What I'm going to talk about right now is going to answer the the Orange Bloods community question and answer portion of the podcast will be coming uh, during the second half of the podcast as usual. But this is going to answer a longstanding question from Orange Bloods user Gray Gordon, where he continually asks me about Deontay Foreman's draft prospects in this NFL draft, where I could see him going, slotting wise, etc. What scouts are saying about him. So I'll answer all of those questions here in the first Longhorns portion of the podcast. Um, and here's what it is. I had talked to scouts at the Combine, scouts at the Senior Bowl. I'd even text message with scouts even coming into the pro day who said that they still believe that Deontay Foreman was a guy who they had to prove was not going to run a 4-6. And I always thought that was crazy because, as you guys know, you know whether you're readers or you're listeners to this podcast or – However you consume my content, you guys know that I've been saying ever since Deontay was a freshman and being recruited as a basically an add-on there with his brother that this kid's got elite speed. He's got Adrian Peterson speed. And I said that because I put my own clock to him and I had him clocked, I believe, that day at a 4-4-4, maybe a 4-4-3. And it was in that same bubble. And... You know, golly, it sure sucked that Pro Day was in that bubble because I was looking so forward to it being in DKR, but the threat of weather moved it inside that crappy bubble. Um, But uh, it was in that same bubble that I measured him his first time at at that 4-4-4, that 4-4-3, right down at the other side of the bubble uh, at his NFL Pro Day where – I counted 24 scouts in attendance. The team, the uh, Longhorns uh, team sources, uh, the SID, and um, also from Gil Brandt's tweet said that there were all 32 teams in in attendance, and they were there to time Deontay Foreman's 40. And it was just unbelievable, and nobody knew what was coming. And I figured maybe the weight, you know, maybe he's put on some weight. You know, it could have added a little bit of time on there to where he's now a four or five guy, something like that. But even being a four or five guy, scouts were saying if he can show us that, you know, that's what we're looking for. Uh, on my other podcast, my the the Roster Watch podcast that you can find and subscribe to if you're into my work and you're into the NFL and fantasy football, I said. I, I just posed the question to my co-host, what d- does he have to run to get up into first-round consideration given everything else that we know? And the answer to that was, look, it's got to be a four-four-five, <laughs> you know? And that's what we said before the pro day, whenever you take everything else into consideration. Because, look, you have the Doak Walker Award winner here. You have the guy who, for the stretch of games that he had to end his career at Texas – was more productive, more efficient, more explosive, and just a better player statistically than Ricky Williams or Earl Campbell. You have the guy who was the nation's leading rusher on a per-game basis. You have a 2,000-yard rusher even in the absence of a bowl game and in the absence of uh, the UTEP game that was a cupcake that could have been a, a 250 yard monster to put on top of it who knows what kind of records he could have set with that so you have all those things going for him you have the fact that well on tape it looks like he has pull away speed he pulls away from fast dbs he's fast as hell anybody with a two eyes can see that 
you see that he weighs 245 pounds during the course of last season, you you know, that, that he can get through the line of scrimmage, that he can break tackles, that he has good vision, that he has quick quick feet. Then you get the pro day. And regardless of what people say about the hand time versus the electronic time at the combine, I don't give a hoot one bit about any of it because what, what Deontay Foreman is being evaluated on right now by NFL teams, the agreed upon time by NFL scouts is a 4-4-5. Deontay Foreman is a 4-4-5 guy. Period. End of story. Hand time versus electronic time. Be damned if you want to get into the weeds with me about that and about how scouts and about how scouts use the data that they took with their own hand time versus the electronic time at the combine and the complaints that some do have about the electronic times. I dare you, I dare you to get me started because we'll be on this damn podcast for two hours. Deontay Foreman is a four four five runner. And that just checks off just to such a huge box. Also, the the uh, three cone, seven flat. That's only better than, what, six guys at the combine? In, in, a drill that, in a drill that a lot of teams care a lot about and showing your change of direction ability, your ability to cut and, you know, cut in an outside zone scheme once you identify your zone lane. And so, like, what Greg Gordon keeps asking about is you know how how I compare him to the other guys in the class, and here's just the here's the very brief overview as somebody that has to do this for a for a living for my fantasy football company. I have to be a thought leader in the evaluation of these rookies as they pertain to fantasy football, as and with the running backs as well as with the wide receivers. So it's something I think about deeply. And I'm just convinced from scouts, from talking to people I trust, and just trusting my own eyeballs and keeping this thing simple that Leonard Fournette's the best running back prospect in this class. I'm not going to overanalyze it. I'm not going to get into nitpicking season like everybody else. But then after Fournette, what do you have? Okay, everybody said Dalvin Cook. And, hey, in the fantasy community, it got even more, more crazy. It's, uh, people were saying that in dynasty leagues, dynasty football leagues, you take Dalvin Cook over Leonard Fournette. Dalvin Cook with character concerns of his own. Uh, Dalvin Cook, who comes to the combine and outside of the bench press, where he's 71st percentile, 6th percentile in the 20-yard shuttle. Ninth percentile in the three cone, ninth percentile in the vertical. The broad jump, he was bottom third. He had a decent 40, but it was a it, it was what four uh, four four nine. He had a four five one, a four five three at the pro day. He's not as he's not as fast as Deontay Foreman, and he tested miserably in his explosive and his change of direction tests. He has character concerns. He didn't win the Doak Walker Award. You have guys like Alvin Kamara. You have guys like Christian McCaffrey. Yes, they're great players. They can be difference makers. I think Christian McCaffrey could have like a Reggie Bush-like effect on a team and not old man Reggie Bush, like young Reggie Bush. But those are change of pace guys. Those are, I mean, not gadget. I hate to say gadget guys, but they're just... I mean, they're this kind of new sort of gadget guy plus. They're like your Amir Abdullahs or your Gio Bernards, the guys who you hope you can maybe get them up to, you know, I don't know, what, 16 touches? Involve them, in the, involve them in the passing game? But, you know, those two guys aren't two guys who are going to hold up at those weights like it's 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 not a it's not a Devonte Freeman that we're talking about right not a Trey Mason type at at those weights it's just, it's more it's more on the change of pace side and then you got Joe Mixon who who hit a girl it's all over it's all over knocked the living just knocked her knocked this girl out and if it wasn't for that He'd probably be the, you know, he'd be in consideration right up there at the top with Deontay Foreman. But how, like, what are you gonna, you're gonna, Deontay Foreman, as far as his credentials, seems to, uh, 
seems to have this guy beat in 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 every case. You know, Joe Mixon. I guess the only argument you can make is the Le'Veon Bell comparisons with him and his ability to catch the ball as a receiver out of the backfield. That was not something that Deontay Foreman got to show in college. But at the pro day, he he didn't he didn't drop a ball. He caught every ball that was thrown his way, and not only did he catch every ball that was thrown his way, not to mention in those 10 and one inch hands, not only did he catch every ball thrown his way, he caught them out away from his body, he framed them beautifully, adjusted to them well, and got, and got upfield. He showed that he's a natural catcher of the football. You would be too if your brother was a star wide receiver and you guys grew up throwing the football together in the backyard. Of course he can catch. So in this draft, if you're going to be taking one of these guys over Deontay Foreman, you're going to have to answer as to why. Because it wasn't the college production that was better. If you cared so much about college production, you would take the pipsqueak from out of San Diego State, Danelle Pumphrey. They ran for 8 million yards. And it's, it's not about the measurables. Because Deontay Foreman just ran a seven flat three cone and a four four five, and it's not about the character quality. Because Deontay Foreman, from everything that I know and from everything that I've witnessed and from what I know of uh, his family and the people around him, is a is is a genuinely good kid. When you know that the, I mean, you know that there's allegations swirling around a Dalvin Cook. You've seen on film what Joe Mixon is capable of, and the way he acted on Twitter after it. I mean, you're going to have to explain to me, or you're going to have to explain to somebody why you take that guy over Deontay Foreman. It, it's my, it's my sincere opinion right now, my professional opinion. That Deontay Foreman is the second best running back in this entire 2017 NFL draft, and he should be drafted drafted accordingly. If he's not, it'll mean that the team who is taking the taking the Alvin Kamara, who's taking the Christian McCaffrey, has a very specialized role in their offense in mind for that player. All right, just wanted to hit on a couple of notes from practices. I guess we've had since. Getting back from spring break, we've had a few practices open to us. We had the student appreciation practice, which was cockamamie, the way that they handled that with the media. I'll, I'll get to that in one second. I know some of you are tired of hearing about me, talk, hearing me talk about it. If so, you know, feel free to uh, fast forward through that portion of the podcast. Um, but as far as the actual practices, stuff we've taken away from them, I guess since the last podcast we've had, what we had a Thursday practice. We had we did have the Saturday student appreciation practice. We did not have the Tuesday practice availability. Uh, they did not make an open window of practice for us on uh, that Tuesday because uh, of the pro day. But we will have a, an availability on Thursday. I personally will not be there as I will be traveling uh, right after I get done recording this podcast to lovely college station for Texas A&M Pro Day. I'll be going straight from there to Texas Tech Pro Day for Patrick Mahomes throwing session. But uh, so, you know, we'll be depending on Anwar Richardson over at Orange Bloods for coverage uh, of of Thursday's practice and his reporting from the uh, window of availability. But, you know, got a little bit of information yesterday from, or I guess information from yesterday from a few sources today about what was going on at practice. And here is some of the highlights. First with Zach Shackelford out. Uh, he, uh, Zach Shackelford, I guess, we, you know, Zach Shackelford is out. I think he's probably going to be out for uh, a good while. I think it was an ankle. It was report. It was told to us by the media relations that he injured during the student appreciation day scrimmage. Uh, as mentioned previously, the media was not allowed at the student appreciation day scrimmage. Um, but that was something that occurred that day. I guess it occurred in front of the students, so they had to let us know that that did happen. Uh, Shackelford, of course, the the center on the offensive line. The way that they've handled it. And the way that it was handled, at least on Saturday during that practice, and also from what I'm told on Tuesday, was that they moved Jake McMillan into the center position and then got Elijah Rodriguez in at the right guard position that was previously occupied by Jake McMillan. When you look at Elijah Rodriguez, 
last year only had gradable performances in um, three games versus Utah. And this is interesting about Elijah Rodriguez. He is a guy that last year he played in three games at three different positions. <laughs> he played at um, left tackle in the game that uh, the game that what was it that Connor Williams sat out. Con- Connor Williams did not play. He got the rest week versus UTEP in the second game of the season. Uh, so he played left tackle that game. He played he he rotated in at left guard versus West Virginia and then versus Kansas he played center. So he's a guy that's literally played every position uh, on the offensive line kind of leading you to believe that he's probably established himself as uh, Derek Wareheim's sixth man that he sort of talked about. He wants a guy with some versatility and some flexibility to hop in to either a guard or a tackle role. A guy like Elijah Rodriguez gives you the benefit of also being able to hop into a center role should any kind of shakeup occur. Uh, so he was the one that got in immediately there at, at right guard, even though the player practicing at the second team right guard for at least all that's been available to me to see, and I assume probably through Tuesday's practice, is still uh, Patrick Hudson. Instead of him stepping up into the second group, it is Elijah Rodriguez. He graded horribly as a tackle versus UTEP. As I look back through the grading logs, uh, just a, a horrible week that week. Uh, his best game actually came versus West Virginia where he was playing guard. He got a 77.56 on the deep digs grading scale. He, uh, he During that game, he only allowed one active disruption. He allowed one run stuff during his first series in the game. After that series, I think that he got in he he got in some shit for, for allowing that stuff. So they put Patrick Vahe back in. Um, this was during a point in time last season where Patrick Vahe was coming in and out of football games. There was a sense that Maddox was probably a little bit on tilt with him, and so uh, th- you know th- that was sort of the situation there. But uh, through the course of that game, they rotated in and out, playing an even number of snaps uh, virtually. And actually, let me look at just the total snaps on the season to see the split in that game between Vahe and Elijah Rodriguez. In that Vahe in that game played 57.58% of snaps, while Rodriguez handled the 43.43% of snaps. And during the course of that time, Elijah Rodriguez only allowed the one stuff. The issue is when you look at the offensive line disruption allowed. Uh, on a per snap basis, Elijah Rodriguez last year on 222 total snaps allowed four sacks, four stuffs, one TFL, and also committed two penalties. So that was uh, one active disruption allowed uh, once per every, or one active disruption allowed and or penalty caused uh, every 20.2 snaps. The good news there is that those occurred mainly with one disastrous game where he played left tackle, where he's not suited to be playing, uh, even getting whooped up against a, a, a team like UTEP. Um, the, at guard, he played his best game of the season, did not allow any of that disruption. And also, uh, Zach Shackelford, his snaps per disruption allowed and or penalty caused was once every 20.1 snaps. So, I mean, Elijah Rodriguez was only the amount of liability last season that uh, Zach Shackelford was, and he was just a Band-Aid jumping around from position to position as a backup and that wasn't suited to to play any tackle. So if he's a guy who the new staff likes at that guard position, it seems like he's probably suitable depth, you know, suitable depth. To, to step up there, and it'll just be interesting to see how that goes through the rest of spring practice. I think that Zach Shackelford's probably going to be out for for a good while. They sort of made it seem like it was an indefinite issue, so uh, it, we're going to see if, if more of that stuff occurs, but that's sort of where the offensive line is for right now. Oh, also Brandon Hodges, of course. That was something that I kept asking about uh, from the SID. They didn't get me an answer until after the student appreciation practice. Uh, the answer on Brandon Hodges is it's grades. That's why he hasn't been out of practices on Thursday and or Saturday. I'd imagine that he's having trouble with his grades. So it's been Tristan Nicholson there at right tackle. He needs to get things together in the classroom with his academics. Um, 
and that's opening up a few things for for Denzel Okafor. Uh, you know, he's been able to he's been able to get in a little bit. I've heard with the first group at the right tackle as they shift things around and uh, you know try and try and work that right guard position with uh, possible um, you know possible scenarios that don't involve Rodriguez at the right guard and pos- could involve him at the center. All right, so for the quarterbacks, uh, not really too much new to report. I've heard that, you know, one, one, I guess one interesting thing is that Shane Bouchelle and Sam Ellinger on Tuesday practice, somebody told me that they were splitting some first-team reps. I'd never seen that. I'd only seen Shane with the first group and Sam with the second group. I don't know if them splitting reps during team drills is something that occurs all the time, but this person told me they were splitting reps. To me, that indicates these guys are neck and neck. I think we're going to – I mean, I keep saying it. I think we're going to see a quarterback competition. Running backs, I mean, you guys know every, everyone's hurt. Uh, Anwar heard from a source at the Student Appreciation Day practice that Chris Warren is not as hurt as was originally feared and that he should be back soon. But right now it's the Kyle Porter show, and behind him it's it's walk-ons. Kirk Johnson is not healthy. He hasn't fully regained health since his uh, initial try to come back off of the 20, I guess, golly, is it now a 25th, November 2015 ACL? Am I right on, on that? Golly. So, yeah, he man, Kirk Johnson needs to get healthy. You feel bad for the kid, man. He's a beast and he's a freak, but he needs to get healthy. Tristan Houston, who was coming along this camp, one person said he looked like the. He, one person said, I, I, I am not lying one bit when I said Tristan. He told me Tristan Houston look, looked like the best runner out there. I said, Are you kidding me? The runners have been a little, were, even before they, they all got hurt, they were a little bit of a disappointment. I mean, you can't expect much out of Tony O'Carter. He's a, he's a, he's a true freshman. He, should, he, he shouldn't even be like ready for prom yet. So what can you really expect out of that guy? He's, he's going to be a good one. And I liked what I saw out of him in practices, but he got hurt at the last Thursday. He was in a boot for Saturday practice. you got one scholarship runner right now. Seeing how those guys come along is going to be, uh, going to be important. I guess with the defensive backs, uh, it's just been a whole lot of mixing up at the corners. Chris Boyd and uh, Holton Hill started out the year at the two corners. It seems like they've gotten back to that. Devontae Davis had mixed in, though, a little bit with those guys. So, you know, getting those three on the field, getting them figured out remains an important issue. Another thing, it was yesterday, I believe, Tuesday in practice, where we're hearing Brandon Jones got work with the ones that was over John Bonney at safety. So I think fans are going to like that, you know, if, if that can stick. Brandon Jones and Deshaun Elliott back there at the safeties, two real recent stud recruits. Uh, I mean, as far as Brandon Jones, probably the most highly rated prospect on the whole entire team. I mean, he was the number one, what, number – Number two player in the number two player in the state his year, so uh, big time that he's coming along. So uh, there with the DBs, just a couple of shakeups. Linebackers, I thought the big shakeup was Eric Fowler to the second team defense that seemed to occur uh, sometime between Thursday and the student appreciation day practice. There at the Mike linebacker position, uh, they, you know they like him with the second team. It looks like he's moving up. He played exclusively with the third team at all practices available to us prior to the student appreciation practice. So uh, it's possible he is un- unseating uh, Edwin Freeman for now. Uh, the wide receivers, uh, you know, really not too much to report there. It looks like the starting group continues to be. Colin Johnson at the, I guess, the X wide receiver. Gerard Hurd at the other outside receiver. I guess we call it the Z wide receiver. And then at the slot, it's mainly Devin DuVernay with Armani Foreman continuing to mix in. So just quickly, I'm going to address the thing about the media policy, the Student Appreciation Day practice. For those of you that might not be on Orange Bloods, for those of you that are on Orange Bloods that complain about this kind of stuff, like I said, Quit listening to the podcast. I do not care. Or fast forward. I do not care. 
Okay, here is the main issue. The main issue is that it was an open practice that I walked in the north end zone for and walked into the stadium and stood with the students. <laughs> I wasn't asked for my student ID. I wasn't asked for anything to distinguish myself from any of the other random folks who were there, probably half students, half, half random people. I was seen by somebody in the sports information department, and they said, hey, you can't be down there. You got to go with the rest of the media. I said, all right, fine. You know, no big deal. I go up to meet with the rest of the media where we wait until a certain period of practice where they bring us down to practice, okay? This is an open practice that is open to anybody. People are up in the stands. People are on the field. Um, you know, you can see uh, just – you can see that it's not one that is, you know, highly regulated as far as who is there, who is not there, et cetera. After the initial – periods i guess the initial what like it was practice periods three four and five they got to practice period six and they come over the loudspeaker and say like are you ready for some football you know and, and the people who were there cheered and they run out there like they're gonna go scrimmage and the media guys say say we gotta bounce and they escort the media out and i'm just like are you kidding me it's like it's a, we can't just linger around you know like let's just close the wind the photo and window of availability and, I mean, let me just be here as a, not as a media member, just as a guy. It's like this random dude standing here. Like, you know, and they're like, no, you know, credential media has to, has to leave. We have to be consistent. And I'm just like, you don't, like, how stupid is that? Why not just, why, why not just take off my credential and just be in here like the normal person that I was when I walked in here through the north end zone, free and clear of anybody asking me my name, who I was, any booths set up to, to, you know, welcome people or ask them who they were or sign them off a list or check their IDs, just an open door into practice. Why can't I walk into it? I just, I just think it's, un it's unbelievably, it's unbelievably stupid. And, and it just, especially it hurt me, it just hurt me personally, especially badly that right as they said, like, let's get ready for some football. And me, they, a guy that just loves football and loves to evaluate it and wants to do the best job I can as an analyst. You know, I'm not a journalist. I'm not a reporter. I'm an analyst, and I'm a business owner, and I'm a fantasy football guy, and I'm a and I'm a podcaster, and I'm a radio host on Sirius XM. I am not a journalist. I'm, you know, like, uh, of course. So, people who say that I don't handle this well as far as dealing with media relations, yeah, of course, I don't handle it well. I want to do the best job I can for the Orange Bloods community because the Orange Bloods community is what pays my salary and I can't do my best job for the Orange Bloods community with, for these nonsensical issues. The Deep Dig Podcast is brought to you by OrangeBloods.com. Get a free seven-day trial membership at OrangeBloods.com today. If you're not a member of Orange Bloods and you like this podcast, like I say all the time, you are absolutely crazy. You are going to, you're going to love Orange Bloods. You're going to be absolutely addicted to it. Go inside the 40 acres, interact with the community, read our stories. You know, if it's whether it's Longhorns football, Longhorns baseball, Longhorns basketball, you know, in any of it, we have it completely covered with the breaking news, the analysis, the rumors, the you know, up to the minute, behind the scenes. You will find it all at Orange Bloods community. It's not the biggest. It's not the you know. It's not the like literally the biggest team site in the whole college football world for no reason. It's the biggest and the best for a reason. Go to orangebloods.com, get a trial membership. It's free for seven days. If you don't like it, no big deal. Don't get the membership. But here's the thing. You're going to love it. You're going to be a member of our family for life. And speaking of the Orange Bloods community, they have a ton of questions and answers this week, a bunch of Longhorns question and answers, a whole lot of super weird ones. But that's what we love about it. The Orange Bloods community's question and answer portion of the podcast.
Alex Dunlap's work at orangebloods.com is brought to you by Wendy Swankowski DDS, the best in family and cosmetic dentistry for the Houston Memorial area. Please support this content by supporting our sponsors. Find out today why so many members of the Orange Bloods community are patients of Dr. Swankowski by calling her office at 281-293-9140 and scheduling an appointment or online at windyswandds.com. That is windyswandds.com, 281-293-9140. Guys, go schedule an appointment with Dr. Swankowski. Find out why so many members of the Orange Bloods community are her patients. Okay, on to the question and answer portion of the podcast. The first question, we have 10 questions this week, so I'm going to try to fire through them, at least fire through the ones that I can. Some are hard. I ask for hard questions, and you and you always deliver. Uh, if push comes to shove, would you ever consider cannibalism? That comes from Dank Bank. And so, I, I, just, I mean, my initial thought was no. And may, I, maybe I should have just stuck to it. But, I mean, long story short, I think that I can't ever, ever put myself really into that mindset, I guess. So, basically, I looked into this, and there's been a whole bunch of, believe it or not, like a whole lot of like psychological thought and sociological like experimentation put into the idea of cannibalism. And what it shows is that humans were revolted by the idea of cannibalism. But... We are surprisingly empathetic and understanding to others who might have been driven to cannibalism out of necessity or in life or death situations. Not weird, you know, tribes in the Congo or something that eat each other that you hear, you know, horror stories about. Like if some, like, in, like in the, uh, like in Alive, the movie, you, know, you feel bad, you feel awful for those guys. We don't shun them, you know. We like. You know, you feel like there's, you know, they've been put through something horrible and damaging, right? And it's like, so the, this whole study of being driven to cannibalism, it's fascinating. There's lots of great minds pitching in, like numerous fields, like I said, psychology, sociology. And what it is, is like there's a chain of events, like with eating. And first, people eat food animals, right? They're like, or whatever animals that they have in their society that are around to be food. I mean, just think, for it's like you know, cows and chickens and eggs or like pigs, goats, stuff you know, stuff that's around so you can eat it. When they're not available, you know, of course, wild animals, birds, wild wild ungulates, large cats, rabbits. Then you go down the totem pole to like varmints, you know, rats and possums and raccoons and squirrels, and you got to get down to bugs. And worms and snakes and grubs, like only around this time, and this is the important thing, only around this time would you start to eat like your worker animals. Not even your pets, your worker animals, like your horses, you know, your mules, the animals that are there, you know, and, and, and that are there that work alongside you. And the reason is, is you have some kind of human connection with them. Like, they're worker animals. There's, so there's a bit of a chemistry and a connection there. There's something that unites you, you know? Like, like they work for you. They have a job. You don't want to eat your horse. It's only after that, no, and you know what comes next after that, technically, is they try and do everything they can to even eat the nasty parts of them. The stomach lining. You know, the, the, the kind of organ meats that are the gross ones. The hooves, you know, you should like, you got to start eating all that stuff before you'll eat a family pet, like a dog or a cat. And by that time, you're clearly getting very desperate. But I mean, family pets are thought of as members of the family, right? And so it's just like that human connection, right? That human connection is even closer. It makes it even harder. And so what studies have shown is if you look at cannibals in almost any observable situation, they'll start by eating the outsiders or the ones who are different from them. And just a few examples from history, of course, like I said earlier, the movie alive. Um, if you look at it, they, for, once they made the decision that they were going to have to cannibalize to stay alive, the first people they ate were the pilot and the crew. They didn't eat the guys on their rugby team. They ate the guys they didn't know, you know, even though it's just like, it's, it's stupid. 
but it's it's your mind has some kind of your mind has like a wall up like uh that'll make you do irrational things like uh the like the the Donner party was another another kind of american story i guess that is i don't i mean i guess an american historical tale that has involving cannibalism basically it was um it was a group in the 1860s and they were moving west they were going out into the new frontier of the u.s but they got stuck in the sierra nevada mountain range and then the crazy snowstorm came and they didn't help 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 didn't arrive they they tried to get help. Help didn't arrive. They had to go out of there, try and get out of there on foot. Basically, what happened in that is whenever they had to cannibalize, it was white people. They had two Native American guides who basically kept them alive this whole time and helped them track this land that they had, you know, godforsaken land. They had no idea how to get anywhere. These two guides that they said, it, you know, even if you look into it, these two guides even had provided them with mules. And emergency supplies whenever they weren't able to get them, and the and the and the white people ate the Native Americans <laughs> because they were different. You know, it's like a different. It was like a different group. And so basically, what I'm saying is your your mind starts putting up these just you know you go abiding by these principles that seem you know I mean to to dehumanize this meat whatever you know this meat you're about to partake in from from what it actually what it actually you know i guess from what it actually is or what the other way that you perceive it which is your human you know and friend or your human counterpart that was riding on the airplane or the native american guide you know the, there's some part of your there's some part of your mind that can make a rationalization for eating another human at, you know, at points when you really need to eat. So who am I to say I wouldn't resort to it? It's like, it, 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 look, if I ever did resort to, to, to cannibalism, rest assured it wouldn't be my fault. Okay, number two, the most underrated football player of the Mac Brown era for the Horns. That comes from uh, the Icebox, and it's funny, uh, the Micah, too. They both randomly ask basically the same question in this week's thread, so... Really, really weird. Um, and I looked over it. I said, this is one where you can't really have a, uh, an answer where you can just stamp it as right or wrong. But I think maybe Jackson Jeffcoat, you know, if you're th- I mean, he's kind of underrated, right? Or, I mean, you don't think about him as like a, one of the great guys. Uh, you know, you don't think about him in the same sense with the Brian Arakpo's or the Derek Johnson's or any of those types on defense. Maybe not even the Michael Griffin. Certainly not the DBU guys. The Tim Crowders, you know, Jeffco's second most tackles for loss all time in his career, only behind DJ. He had six more TFLs in his career at Texas than Casey Hampton, seven more than Sean Rogers, 11 more than the Cowboy himself, Tony Brackens. Jeffco, what, fifth? Fifth all time in, uh, his, with his single season st- sacks. He's in front of Arakpo, Steve McMichael, Kenneth Sims, numerous others. Number seven all-time in total sacks. He's ahead of Arakpo again, ahead of Brackens again, Aaron Humphrey, Corey Redding. So considering the fact that he's never mentioned in the same sentence as these guys outside of when you read the stats, I'd say that during the Mac Brown era, maybe it was Jackson Jeffcoat. Number three. What a dirtball question, but I put it in. It's from uh, Tony3487, and this is basically the indecent proposal. Would you let somebody sleep with your wife for $10 million? And quick answer, no. That would ruin my life. My life's worth more than $10 million. <laughs> Look, I'm a goal-oriented person. I want $10 million by the time I am 50 by simply doing the things I love and working very hard and trying to invest my money correctly why would I ruin my life and family just to get ahead by 15, 14, 14 years, 13 and a half years? And who knows? I might not have 10 million by the time I'm 50, but I will in my lifetime have $10 million. I'm making it a personal goal right now on this very podcast, but I will not let some random dude know. Ugh. I'm, I'm telling you, my life will be ruined. I, could, I just couldn't get that out of my head. Uh, Ah. No, sir. Uh, number four. 
Don't hear much other sports from you. Did you grow up a fan of baseball slash basketball? What team's players did you follow? That comes from James Billyhorn. And no, I'm I'm really a fan of football only for the most part. That's why you don't hear <laughs> you don't hear much talk from me about other sports. I don't know much about them. You know, I played football growing up. All I really ever played, um, I played you know youth baseball and youth soccer. But other than that, it was just football for me. I, I during the off season, I would do track, track and field, and I would do powerlifting. But that was only because my football coaches made <laughs> were, were my football coaches made me. It was part of my off season training program for football to partake in those those track events like discus. And you know. I will say a lot of my family's teachers and coaches, like I come from a lot of coaches and stuff. So I certainly went to a lot of games growing up to all kinds of games, even girl, like girls, basketball games and softball. But I mean, I just love football the most. The only sports I've ever played football, baseball, just a little, I I couldn't even play basketball. I never played at that organized at any level. I'm awful at it. I played Western Union rugby for the Austin Blacks after high school, but that's not a fun sport to watch. You're be a fan of. You can't find good content about rugby to watch. I guess thanks to daily fantasy sports, I've begun to have more and more of a growing appreciation for for baseball, Major League Baseball. I, I'm getting kind of, be kind of to kind of like it. I'm beginning to become kind of a fan. You know, hated it growing up. I've generally hated it my whole life. I thought it was boring for old people and stuff. And maybe that means I'm, I'm turning into an old person, <laughs> right? But, um, you know, I just, it's kind of like with fantasy sports. I don't like teams. Like, I don't have teams as much as I have players that I really like. So I just figured I'd make this list. Let me pull this list. And these are the players that I just like, and I did uh, by positions. And so catchers. Last year was really Gary Sanchez that I loved using. I just thought that that guy's pace was going to wear down, but he just he kept delivering game after game towards the end of the season last year. And out of your catcher, you love that. I also loved Wilson Contreras while he was catcher eligible. By the end of the year on DraftKings, they made him to where he was only eligible as an outfielder. And the general go-to if he's on the slate for me, Buster Posey. Just He's always a real stud at catcher, which is a position where you can't get a whole lot of – uh, you know, huge tournament-winning upside through home runs. Buster Posey's a guy who's you know has a good floor with a with a tremendous upside. I don't know anything about middle relievers or closers as far as pitchers. I only played like I, my knowledge of baseball comes from just watching. You know, like sometimes I'll know if a team has a horrible bullpen. Because that's something like I'll look into bullpen rankings, and so I guess that gets me into the land of middle relievers and closers. But I don't ever, I'm not fans of any of these guys because I don't roster. You only roster starting pitching in, in daily fantasy sports. But um, the only way you look into bullpens if it's team, if it's like games that you look at that have a big line that you want to target. You know, you can say that like the Cincinnati. I think the Cincinnati Reds last year had like the from. I mean, from my experience, had one of the worst bullpens in all of baseball. And so, what I would do is I would target hitters against them in games where the lines were pretty high, where they were pretty high favorites. Uh, this way, I figured they were pretty high favorites because um, the opposing team was going to be getting into that bullpen and being able to knock these guys around. So, I'll, I'll I'll look at that. I'll look at that kind of stuff. But I don't I don't know who my favorite like middle relievers or closers are. As far as starting pitching, I love Clay, Clayton Kershaw. For fantasy, and I just love to watch him. He seems like he's probably one of the best there is, um, just on a different level than ever than everybody else, both in pricing and just the way he looks. Lots of play, lots of guys at first base, um, but despite even a down season in 2016, man, like Paul Goldschmidt in 2015 made me so much cash that I just, I love him. Shout outs also to to uh, Trumbaum E5, love both of you guys too. Second base, no question, Altuve, one of my favorite players in baseball. That little man just jacks it. I think he's awesome to watch. And, and you know, hey, no question in shortstop either. It's Carlos Correa, another favorite of mine. So maybe by random chance, I am kind of an Astros fan. Um, third base, lots of great ones. I played Josh Donaldson a lot just because, you know, I like the – I like the uh, – I like to stack the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, it's the the top of that order. It's a, usually a pretty chalky stack when they're on the slate, but I always love to do it for a nice high floor when when they're playing games with high with high totals. And I always like to play 
Oh, as far as left, in, oh no, no, as far as third third baseman, Danny Valencia is my dude versus left-handed pitching. I love that he's a he's a lefty masher. And for as far as the outfield, love me some Nelly Cruz. Always, always love him. I love playing him in those late night hammer spots where you know if he has a big game. You know, nobody likes take, especially if it's before lineups lineups are up whenever the slate locks. If if starting lineups aren't up yet and people don't know where people are going to be, uh, you know, if maybe may, you know, who knows, maybe they're scratched or if they're batting at a bad spot in the order. Like, people just love to have the lineups up before they put their DFS, you know, lineups in. And so sometimes – Nelson Cruz, like the Mariners, their lineups aren't up by the time you got to get your lineups in for DFS, and so his ownership's generally lower. So it's a late night game. It's one of the last games. He's going to have a lower ownership percentage, and those are games where I love to to get those guys in with high upside. So Nelly Cruz, I use him all the time. Of course, you know Trout, Bryce Harper, love to use those guys. Um, I used to love to use John Carlos Stanton, but that dude killed me. In 2016, I don't know what happened to him. I actually started liking Marcelo's using Marcelo Zuna better towards the end of the season, and then my sneaky guy who I always love, Mister Adam Duvall. Five thoughts on the Raiders moving to Vegas. That comes from Xavier B. XB Hookem. And I'll tell you this: I've mentioned the Roster Watch podcast here already, but I love that podcast. Tuesday's edition of that podcast. Uh, number 12 at rosterwatch.com backslash podcast talks a ton about it. My thoughts, my co-host Byron Lambert's thoughts. You know, and by the way, if if you like my work on Orange Bloods, go subscribe to that bi-weekly podcast. You can hear my analysis of the NFL, NFL draft, and uh, fantasy football. That's the Roster Watch podcast. Find it on Stitcher and on iTunes. But in short, yeah, revolutionary move by by the Raiders, just the original Maverick franchise of the NFL. They continue to push the envelope. Could not imagine a better fit, better franchise, like better franchise city fit. Wonderful outcome for all involved. I, I, I feel bad for Raider Nation there in there in Oakland, right? Losing a team always sucks. And I look, I for the people that keep on crying NFL extortion and blah blah. You guys, you guys cry me a damn river. I mean, NFL drives the bus around here. Get on board or get the hell out. Like, like, look, I mean, Vegas, look, Vegas is paying out the nose for an NFL team, and, and there's a reason why. But, you know, like I said, perfect, perfect fit. The relationship in Oakland wasn't any good anyway. Like, didn't Al Davis sue Oakland a bunch? Mark Davis's relationship wasn't any better. That stadium sucked. They had to play on a baseball field. Speaking of Danny Valencia, he's you know he's 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 stealing bases the same places where Latavius Murray's tripping over the you know damn infield, unbelievable like like you can't play football in that thing, dude. I mean look at the look at it like this. Finally, soon the era of NFL teams having to play this amateur hour BS version of football on baseball fields is going to be over. Look, Raider Nation lives everywhere. It's bigger than Oakland. Look, this move will only grow the fan base. They're going to get fans from this. Fans of other teams are going to see the Raiders live more often than they see their own team. Because why? Because they're going to be in Vegas and they're going to want to go see football. Or because it'll be the one away game that they'll want to go see their team play in because it'll be in Vegas. I just, I mean, it makes me want to be a fan. I think it's awesome that Las Vegas has a football team. Look, it's, it's, it, it's it's needed to happen. It's it's it, Raider Na- and it's just perfect. Raider Nation is an international nation, and Vegas is an international city. Here's my questions: How will the players handle living there? There's already strip clubs. Sapphire has already t- offered f- players free lap dances and limo rides forever. They actually said forever, free lap dances and limo rides. What could possibly go wrong? With you know, roided up <laughs> hormones racing, twenty-something-year-old, you know, huge men that play a violent sport to get free lap dances all night. <laughs> um, I can't imagine that putting them in any sort of bad positions. Also, I mean, are they going to be allowed to play? Golly, I just can't imagine the positions these guys are going to be put in. 
free lap dances for life. You know how many drugs there are going to be at, 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 you know how many drugs there are at those Vegas strip clubs? Like, these guys are going to be putting themselves in positions. Ugh. Um, like, are they going to be able to play blackjack, roulette, poker? So, so what I did, I looked up the, the NFL's gambling policy, or, and I, sh- I, sh- I should say read a few articles from, I guess, a few years back about the NFL's gambling policy, mainly centered around the NFL's resist. And it's so funny how the NFL has just come full circle on fantasy and just embraces it like it's its own invention now. <laughs> they, they, before UIGEA, the NFL just kept fantasy football – you know, at the very least, at, at arm's length, and basically classified it as as gambling. But anyway, it was about the um, it was about Tony Romo and he having his fantasy football convention in Las Vegas. Remember, and it couldn't be inside a casino and all this. And so, what it was is that it says in one portion that all players and league personnel are allowed to go to quote legally operated casinos or horse racing tracks for the purpose of wagering on casino games or races on their own time. So technically, this means that Las Vegas Raiders players or visiting players coming to visit the Raiders if they've stayed the night, they would be allowed to be inside a casino or a sports book to gamble. However, it says in a separate section that players are not allowed to partake in activity that, quote, can be perceived as constituting affiliation with or endorsement of gambling-related activities. <laughs> so... That, like the act of gambling is not an inherent endorsement of gambling related gambling related activities. I just if you're gambling, it says in it says in one part that you can that you can be at a horse track or casino wagering on these games in your own time. Well, hell, we've seen Wes Wes Welker as an NFL player high as can be on Molly wagering on horses and throwing money around. But then it says at the end that they cannot partake in activity that can be perceived as constituting affiliation with or endorsement of gambling-related activities. So I'm just asking, is gambling itself not an inherent endorsement of gambling-related activities? I don't know. Players are going to need to be briefed on this prior to 2019. And they should move earlier than 2019. Staying around there for in that city that doesn't want you, you don't want it. It's like getting divorced and staying in the same house with your ex-wife. Get, just get the move over with. Go play in some crappy stadium until your beautiful new home for Raider Nation is built in Vegas. Seven, what pisses you off more? Getting all the way to the 14th floor with all your shit and your family's shit for the key card not to work? Or standing in line at the grocery store and some lady sends a six-year-old back to the aisles to try and locate something she's never even heard of before after five to six minutes nobody's heard from him? That comes from A-10 Horn. So it's basically what bothers me more, getting upstairs with all of my luggage with my wife and my family and my key card not working that had been given to me by the by the person at the front desk or um, being held hostage for my time by some idiot who thinks, basically, here's my answer. It's the second one. Because the thing that with the key card, that was a mistake that somebody made, Okay. That was something where they they slide, slide the card. They wanted to do it right. They handed it to you. They do it a million times a day. They did it wrong. They're sorry. It, it doesn't really take you that much time. Leave your wife there. Leave your kids there. Watch the luggage, honey. Be right back. Head downstairs. Hey, the card doesn't work. Room 1426. Sorry about that, sir. Right back upstairs. We're in. Now, the grocery store thing, sending the kid back, that is a conscious decision being made by somebody it's just like, you know, it's just, this reminds me of the coach, I forget the women's uh, basketball coach, who had the thing on Twitter the other day, the big quote about how the players these days seem more self-centered than they used to seem. And I, I said, well, is that the same as selfish? And I started thinking to myself, what's the difference between selfish and self-centered? Is there a difference between selfish and self-centered? What is the difference with kids these days? Are they selfish? And I don't think it's selfish. I think it's Self-centered. I think it's like the, the the view of the world is just sort of more around them, maybe. Maybe that's one of the ways that, you know, I feel like a, a basketball coach, a women's basketball coach of college kids is probably pretty in tune with that and, and sees that very often that, you know, to get to, with these kids, there's more of a view of the world and a more world viewpoint that revolves around you, like self-centered, not necessarily selfish, right? And like the hotel scenario, that's... That's not a decision that somebody 
made to to inconvenience you. That wasn't somebody being inconsiderate. That was somebody just failing at their job. That's that's a mistake, right? The store, somebody made a decision that your time is not as valuable as theirs. They've decided, knowing that time equals money in all of our lives, that, that all of us on earth, that they are going to rob you of some of yours because basically what this is coming down to is them getting their stuff getting out of line, going back, getting the thing they forgot, and getting back in line, they've decided that it is, that it is, worth, it is worth more that some of their time is preserved than it costs you and the people behind them, however many people that is, however many multipliers that is, as far as the utility lost, it's more important than that. Like, I, to, to, to me, it's a ridiculous question. I hate that person. So the better question would be, um, who would have been the one you hate the most? Go back and grab stuff guy or reclines in his seat guy in coach on the airplanes? Because both of those people are just inconsiderate idiots. All right, number eight. Should the 40-yard dash be the gold standard of football speed measurement? Wouldn't a 20-yard sprint be more practical given the distance covered or the distance is covered on the vast majority of football plays, maybe 40 yards for corners and wide receivers. That comes from hookah horns. There is no gold standard hookah horns, but it's the best we have. And But, hey, look, even in wide receivers, you can't put everything into a drill. We're Jerry Rice, the GOAT, right? <laughs> Jerry Rice ran a 4-6. So it's the best we have. From my study and, and through my interviews with great minds in the field of human performance, such as Dr. Brian Hoffman of the University of Georgia, who has done a peer-reviewed study for the performance magazine, human performance magazine on this. Also, I mean, Dr. Hoffman's done some awesome studies about the combine too. Uh, like also about the, the wonder lick, about what a, what a horseshit test that is. Dr. Brian Hoffman, uh, he says that it's the only physical test of the NFL Combine which actually has a true correlation with future NFL success. It's actually a negative correlation because um, just for a, it's just because as the times go down, production goes up. But it's it, it's it's a positive correlation. The more, the lower your time, the more positive you view it, right? So um, the only real correlation right there with any of them, is the 40-yard dash. That includes the 10- and the 20-yard splits. As you mentioned, uh, across all positions, they were statistically negligible. So, no. Number nine, if you found out tomorrow with 100% certainty that there is an afterlife, would it change the way you live right now? That comes from Hornius Emeritus. To me, no. I and pe people might think I'm crazy. You might not believe that I believe this way. But I believe with 100% certainty in my heart that there is an afterlife. So, I don't, I don't think I changed a thing. I'm good. And finally, number 10, and I want to say thank you guys to everybody who submitted questions. As always, um, certainly appreciate them. Couldn't make the podcast without all of you. Also, I ask, if, if you like this podcast, you want me to continue doing it, please you know, give it a thumbs up in Stitcher. Give it a five-star rating in iTunes. It only takes a couple seconds. It's, you know, it's two seconds of your time. It means a whole lot to me and my ability to get sponsors for this podcast, be able to draw attention to it and grow the audience. The audience is growing, and I love that, but there's so many more of you listening than are rating this podcast. If you have a quick second, please give it a five-star rating in iTunes, a positive review. Let's try and knock down some of those <laughs> some of those reviews from other fan bases that aren't quite as as uh, as glowing. I mainly just want you to give good reviews to knock those down, please. Five stars reviews on iTunes. <laughs> All right. So number ten, finally, if you were swallowed by a sperm whale, how long could you survive in his stomach? And I would never be swallowed by a sperm whale because they don't swallow people. Look, whales are smarter than us, I'll bet. I'll bet dolphins are even smarter than us. And I don't think they accidentally swallow anything. They're capable of it. I, I looked it up. They can swallow a, a giant squid, and giant squid are bigger than us. And there are stories online about people surviving inside a, a whale's stomach. There's a story in the Bible about it. I mean, I've never thought that was true. Um, there's a, But there's stories online, too. Like, uh, I think a man in Spain lived in there for three days. A quick search on Snopes. These are all fake. There's one account from uh, 1891 that said this dude, James Bartley, had 
a similar few days inside a whale's stomach. But investigations on this show, inconsistency after inconsistency in that story. I personally called BS when I read that the whale, look, the whale, it says the whale was attacking the boat and he happened to fall in its mouth. When was the last time you saw a sperm whale attacking anything besides a bunch of plankton?